you have your Bibles with this morning, I invite you to open up to John chapter 12 as we continue the, the story that we started earlier, John chapter 12. As you're turning there this morning, I want to remind you that this coming Friday, Good Friday, we will worship together at 7 o'clock at the Sycamore Center. So 7 o'clock on Friday night, we'll worship together as we reflect upon the work of Christ on the cross. And then next Sunday, we'll celebrate the resurrection, we'll celebrate life together, we'll worship at 8.30 and 10.15. Both services next Sunday will be very similar. So I'd encourage you to attend either service next Sunday with family or friends as we celebrate the resurrection together. We turn our attention now, though, to John chapter 12, beginning with the 20th verse. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we ask that you to take your word now and form our thinking, form our lives. We pray this morning, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit would have his way with us. And we pray, O Lord, that as we ponder your word, your word would transform us into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1965, a journey began for a small Texas college. I hired a basketball coach by the name of Don Haskins. Don came along, not much coaching experience at, at that level. This college was not that good at basketball. To begin with, they're a football town. They're in Texas. Well, in 1965, they began the journey of building a men's basketball team. The problem was that they didn't have much money for recruiting, and they couldn't get any of the good players to come there. So Don Haskins began a journey down an interesting road, a road that many would have said when they looked at it at the beginning would lead to destruction, would ultimately lead to his firing. That's what many would have thought. That's probably what many said. But in spring of 1966, that small town of Texas, that small college of Texas Western, won the NCAA championship, basketball championship. Not with 12 white players, but with seven black players. The only players playing for them in the championship game. You see, that had never been done before in NCAA basketball. Never before had anyone started five black players at the same time. And when it came to championship time, he only played the black players. There's a moment in the movie, maybe some of you have seen the movie, Glory Road. There's a mo moment in the movie where the president of the university is spending time with one of the main boosters that has donated a lot of money to the college. And the main booster reminds the president how much money he has given. And he reminds the president that he doesn't care too much for basketball. And he reminds the president that he doesn't care too much for the situation of having seven black players on the team. You would have thought at that moment that would have been a good time for this coach to get off that road. You would have thought at that time it would be a good time for this coach to maybe pursue a different path. At another moment in the movie, they show a scene of the team in a restaurant. One of the players goes into the bathroom, and he gets beaten by a couple of guests. 
at the restaurant. This was just a small taste of the persecution that they were under during that season. You would have thought at that time, the coach would have said to himself, let's take a little different road to victory. Let's find a different path that will work. But the coach stayed on the same road. He chose a road that was not wise in the eyes of his president. He chose a road that was not wise in the eyes of society. He chose a road that was not comfortable and ultimately would bring persecution upon him and his family. But he chose a road that would ultimately lead to glory. He was on the glory road. Nobody recognized it from looking at the outside during the season, but they recognized it at the end when they beat Kentucky, the basketball powerhouse. Maybe the greatest upset in NCAA history. They were at the pinnacle. They were at the ultimate moment of glory. This morning, everybody sitting here today is on a road, is on a path to glory. This morning, you're chasing after what you believe to be glory. Everybody today is in pursuit of that moment of greatness. Glory is that time of majesty, that time of splendor. In the Old Testament, whenever glory is mentioned, it's describing that God is making himself known. His splendor is being seen for all that he is. And you and I chase after glory every single day. This morning, there's probably not many in here that are chasing after an NCAA basketball championship. Most of you are too old for that and too slow, I think. But, but all of us are chasing after some sort of championship. We're chasing after some sort of glory. And we've chosen a road to get to that glory. We've put ourselves on a path that's going to lead us to being known or chosen a path that's going to lead us to ultimate greatness peace, and stability. The question before us this morning is, what road will I travel for my glory? And today in John chapter 12, we see laid out for us the road, the path that Jesus chose to travel for his glory. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the road that Jesus traveled for his glory and then ask ourselves, will we travel the exact same road? You see, this morning, as we look at the death of Jesus Christ, as we look at the road that Jesus traveled, we begin to understand that this was not just a one-time event. Jesus traveled the road once for himself and for salvation for all of humanity once. But at the exact same time, Jesus' destiny of death was also meant to be a pattern that would be repeated by millions that would follow after him. Look with me at John chapter 12. Verses 26, verse 26 in John chapter 12, we see right here, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In real simple language, what Jesus is saying here, if you want to claim me for, for your king, you have to follow the same path that I am following. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you want to acquaint with me, if you want to have me as acquaintance, you've got to imitate me. Jesus is saying to his disciples, where I am going, you also will go. You see, those who claim Jesus for their king must also claim the path that Jesus followed. The path, the road that Jesus took was meant to be a path that we also would follow. It wasn't just a one-time destination. 
but it was an example that followers would follow in the years to come. So what is this road? What is the path that Jesus followed to glory? There's two things that we're going to understand about the road that Jesus took. The first is this. The road that Jesus took was counterintuitive. And the simplest way to say it is this. The road that Jesus traveled was foolish in the eyes of the world. Let's hop back up here in John chapter 12, a story that's probably famous for most of us if we spent any time in church, and that's the Palm Sunday. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. Well, look with me what Jesus is riding. Look at verse 14 and 15. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Jesus is making an entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, these triumphal entries that we're seeing here in John chapter 12, this is not abnormal in this time of this period of time. There had been other triumphal entries into Jerusalem. There had been other times where the Jews thought someone was coming to rescue them. And so there had been previous times where someone would come in in their horses and their chariots, and everybody gathered around and thought, yes, we're going to be released from Roman rule. This triumphal entry was different, though, because the king does not come on a chariot or a horse, but the king comes on a donkey. Now, you can make the joke for yourself this morning of what he's actually riding. And Martin Luther, the famous Bible teacher and the famous Bible scholar, when he was meditating upon these verses, he said the following, From the human point of view, the whole incident looked ridiculous. From the human point of view, the whole incident looked ridiculous. Here you have the Son of God, the King who's coming to free the Jews, riding in on a donkey when military leaders always come on a horse or a chariot. Well, what's going on? Jesus is counterintuitive. He's, he's doing that which is foolish in the eyes of the world. You see, we'll see throughout the next week, Jesus does not bring military might. Jesus does not come from a position of strength to bring freedom for the Jews. But rather, Jesus comes riding a lowly donkey. And then the activity that he undergoes over the next week is what? All lowly activity. There's no meeting of the military minds. There's no fight back when they come and get him with swords and clubs. There's no retaliation when the people spit on him. There's only meekness and humility. This is the king who's coming to conquer sin and death. And the way of this king, the way of Jesus, is counterintuitive. It's foolish in the eyes of the world. But then when we actually take a step back and consider the whole Bible, we understand that actually every time that God works, it's foolish in the eyes of the world. Let's take a little journey this morning and remember back into some of our Sunday school days in the Old Testament. Let's start at the beginning. Joseph. Joseph, if you remember, was the son of many brothers, was ultimately thrown into a pit. People were jealous of him. And then Joseph was ultimately put in prison. And then what happened to Joseph? He was put in charge of food distribution in the midst of a famine. And what happened? His brothers came back pleading for mercy. So here, God takes someone who's been thrown in a pit, thrown in a prison, and then puts them in charge. Why didn't God just say, hey, I'm going to put my person in charge from the beginning? Jesus, God, is counterintuitive, always working outside the box. 
And it doesn't just stop with Joseph. Now maybe go to the most famous story in the Bible of all, David. Everybody likes David, right? I mean, David was a military commander. He was a king of one of the greatest nations to ever be alive. King David conquered multiple places. Yet it all started for David against Goliath. Now, let's just imagine for a moment that you're a military commander. You've been facing this giant, and this giant continues to wipe out your people. So we're military leaders having a little meeting. We're sitting around, what are we going to do about this giant? I mean, anybody got an idea of what we should do? Maybe we should surrender and give them this piece of land and try and make them happy. What do you think happened when someone came forward and said, hey, how about five stones and the smallest soldier that we have? Right? You would have, what have military commanders done? Laughed. I mean, let's be realistic here. And then they are going to actually send him out. What do you think the military commanders are thinking? This is, oh, this is not going to work. Get ready to haul his body and put it with the rest. But what happens? Small stones and the smallest soldier conquer the giant. God, what's God doing? Foolish in the eyes of the world. But it doesn't stop there. Hold on a second. There's another guy in the Old Testament, a prophet named Jonah. Jonah brings a, a message to some people and it doesn't go over too well. And then they throw Jonah over the side of a boat. Well, he's gone. Well, not so fast. A fish eats Jonah or swallows Jonah. And then a couple days later, Jonah comes out of the fish. Okay, how many of you have met someone that has spent a couple of nights at the Holiday Inn? Nobody's met anyone that's spent a couple of nights at the Holiday Inn? Okay, a lot of liars this morning. Thing. How many of you have ever met someone that spent a couple of nights in the local fish? What's God doing? I mean, this is, this is foolishness to quote Luther. This is ridiculous. Well, hold, but uh, you know what? I should slow down a second. I forgot. I, I forgot. These are just stories in a book that we use to kind of get us excited and, and give us kind of this hope. I mean, these are just stories that us religious people that have nothing else to grasp onto, hold on to for, for a glimmer of hope. I mean, we should take a step back here a second. These are, this, I mean, it wasn't really a fish. I mean, Jonah got picked up by some natives from an island, spent a couple of days on an island, and then they kind of made up this story to fit into Scripture and give it more power. I mean, this stuff didn't really happen. But what if it did happen? What if in every instance that God works, God does not use the wisdom of the world, but he uses his own wisdom, and it's actually foolishness in the sight of God? Oh, I know what you're saying now. Well, pastor, that's the Old Testament. Let's move in where God gets real now in the New Testament and deals with reality. Well, let's think about this for a second. So God comes in the form of a human, Jesus. Where is Jesus born? Okay, this is participatory thing, thing. All of you need to go to confirmation again. Thing, thing. Where was Jesus born? Stable, Bethlehem. Good thing. Now, how many kings are born in Bethlehem and in a stable? This is not the place of power. This is not New York City where theater and art is born. This is lowly Bethlehem. 
And this is where God is born. This is where God comes in human form. Foolishness in the sight of the world. Well, now hold on a second. What happens next? What happens next is now all of the children under the age of two are killed. Well, God, well, God couldn't you have chosen a little better way, a little better system? No. God's ways are beyond the world's ways. And it doesn't end, it doesn't end there. Now what happens? We get to the end of Jesus' life. He rides in on a donkey. And not only that, he gets to the end and he's promising to bring freedom. He's standing before and they ask him, are you the king? And yes, as you say. And then what? He just goes to the cross. How many kings end up on the cross? As 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that we read earlier, pure foolishness. Right? I mean, the message of the cross the central message of Christianity does not make sense in the world's eyes. It tells us there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, some are looking for signs, some are looking for wisdom. Guess what? The cross does not meet the criteria of either one because the cross is foolishness in the sight of the world. But this is how God works. God is counterintuitive. God works outside the box. And what's the road that Jesus is on? Jesus is on a road of pure foolishness. If the central message of Christianity is foolish in the eyes of the world, how much more should the everyday lives of followers of Christ be foolish in the eyes of the world? Or maybe it's just these big moments. Maybe it's just these great moments in God's history that it's supposed to be counterintuitive and foolish. But if it's the greatest moments and it's the central message of the cross that's foolish, how much more should our everyday activity be foolish in the sight of the world? And it does not end with Jesus on the cross. Now we turn to the book of Acts. And what happens in the book of Acts? It gets wilder. And these are real people. We're not dealing with fish anymore thing and beating up giants. Real people, what happens? The church is born. Now all of the people in the church do what? They start selling their land and giving their stuff away so everybody has what they need. Somebody forgot to tell Jesus' disciples that they were supposed to run the church like a business. The disciples missed that class in seminary. The whole book of Acts they don't do one thing that would make sense from a strategic plan perspective. Not one. They sell everything. They willingly go to jail. And then not only that, but then guess what they do? They make their core upset. They get the core Jewish people upset because what? They're moving away from the central temple and going to homes. And then hold on. I mean, that's enough. But then God takes it one step further. Who becomes the chief church planter? The chief church persecutor. The chief church persecutor, the one that was killing Christians and demanding that more Christians be killed, becomes the one who takes Christianity to millions to the Gentile world that ultimately reaches you and I. What is God doing does God not know that you're supposed to put your enemies in a box where you can control them and just kind of keep them out of your way? What does God do? God takes his number one enemy 
and makes him the number one evangelist. It's because everything, and, and, I, and I'm not, I don't think I'm exaggerating here, everything that God does is foolish in the eyes of the world. And the journey that Christ took to his glory was foolish. If you ask the people of the world, how should you establish a kingdom? They would not say, follow Jesus' playbook. Jesus' road is filled with counterintuitive activity. So how about you and I today? Are we willing to be foolish in the eyes of the world? Or are we seeking the wisdom of the world? If we want to follow Jesus' road to glory, we must be willing to say, I will be foolish in the sight of my neighbor. The first thing that distinguishes Jesus' road to glory is that it's counterintuitive, it's foolish in the eyes of the world. The next, the next thing that distinguishes the road to glory for Jesus is very simply put, it's hard. Jesus' road to glory is difficult. It's not that of a conquering king that lives in luxury. But let's look here in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 24. Jesus gives a little, just a one-sentence parable describing his life and his path. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that in order to have life, you must give up your life. In other places of the Gospels, Jesus uses the language, take up your cross and follow me. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. Jesus is saying here in this little parable that, yeah, unless it dies, there can be no growth. In other words, unless you put yourself to death, unless you renounce your own ways and your own way of thinking, there's no way to experience life. I mean, it's spring season right now, right? So I've got a little um, assignment for everybody. When you get home today, you got all of your garden stuff that you're ready to plant. Just take one of your seeds, don't plant it, just put it on the windowsill for the rest of the year. And then bring me the vegetables that you create a year from now from that seed. It's beautiful. It works out for both of us. I don't get vegetables, and you learn that a seed needs to be planted. We would all agree this morning. You want fruit, put the seed in the ground. And Jesus is saying, you want life? Renounce your selfish ways. Put your life to the side and pursue the life of Christ. The road to glory for Jesus is foolish, and above all, it is hard. Now let's take a step back for a moment and consider the people that came after Jesus. Because maybe you're thinking, well, pastor, of course, that was Jesus who had to suffer. Jesus had to undergo persecution. Let's consider the next people that came after Jesus. Judas was one of the twelve. Judas obviously dismissed himself from any uh, future following activity. But then he had the eleven and they replaced Judas then with one more. What happens to those twelve? They all give their lives. For the gospel. They do not continue in luxury. They do not finish out in a nice little place by the beach. 
They all give their lives for the gospel. Now consider the Apostle Paul, the chief writer of the New Testament. What's his life like? From one imprisonment to another. From one shipwreck to another shipwreck. The path for all of those disciples is what? Hard. The road to glory for Jesus is difficult. The road to glory for you and I is also difficult. There is no easy path. Jesus does not come promising prosperity. Jesus does not come promising fun. Jesus really promises one thing, difficulty. We just finished a study of the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter was written with one major overarching theme, suffering and persecution. Do you think 1 Peter was just an essay they wrote in seminary thinking that maybe someday somebody's going to undergo some suffering, we should have something written for them? 1 Peter was written out of necessity to give the people of God a word of encouragement because the people of God were living in hardship. Because to follow the road that Jesus followed is to live in hardship, to live in difficulty. You might be saying to yourself, well, Pastor, I brought my family along this morning. You're supposed to make this Christian thing appealing. You're, you're in charge of growing the church, make it welcoming. And you might say, the road that you've laid out before us is unappealing. No one wants to travel down that road. Where do you do your best pheasant hunting? Not down the most appealing highway usually down some little path in some farmer's back field that no one else is willing to travel. The road this morning is not appealing at all. However, however, let's take a moment and look at the benefits of being on this road. Turn with me to John chapter 12. I love to talk about the benefits. Let's talk about the rewards. Let's talk about the destiny Verse 24, so what happens when somebody renounces their, their sinful ways? What happens when we die to ourselves? The end of verse 24, it says, it bears much fruit. In other words, this road is a fruitful road. It may not be fruitful in the sense of we think of fruitful, but it's fruitful in the eternal sense of building up souls, encouraging other followers of Christ. It's fruit that lasts. It's fruit that dust and rust cannot destroy. But then let's look on. What's the other benefit? Verse 25. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I uh, don't think I have to argue that that's a pretty good benefit this morning. Because all of us recognize the shortness of life. It's just here for a moment. You talk to anybody over 60, at least somebody can object if I'm wrong here talk to most people over 60, and what do they always say? Wow, where did time go? You talk to anybody with a kid over 18, and they're like, geez, it was just yesterday. They were in diapers. Because life is just momentary. Well, how about the promise of not being momentary, but the promise of experiencing eternity? That's the benefit of this pathway. That's the benefit of this roadway, is that there is eternity. And now let's look at what exists in that eternity. Look down here at verse 26. This is awesome. This should just get everybody excited. Verse 26 says, 
Jesus says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Everybody here today is living so that you get praise from someone. That's, everybody here likes to be honored by someone. But there's no greater reward than being honored by the creator of the universe. That's who I want to hear say, well done, good and faithful servant. You're my man. Don't you want to be honored as well by your heavenly father? That's what's on this road. That's what's on this path. There's fruit on this path. There's life on this path. And ultimately, there's honor on this path from the one who matters. This road is not very appealing in the sight of the world. But when you change perspective for a moment and consider eternity, all of a sudden, this road becomes very appealing because there's glory at the end. This morning, the question is not, are you on a road to glory? The question is, what road are you traveling to glory? This morning, it's beautiful seeing students willing to come up front and confess their faith. I don't know how many... Students I've seen come through the years, confess their faith, and go on their way. Right? Let's just deal with reality. Think. This happens all the time. All over this city in the next couple of months, people get up in front and say, I believe, <clears throat> follow the Apostles' Creed. Years later, you'll find them nowhere on this journey, nowhere on this road that Christ has called, to, called us to be on. This morning, my question is not, are you willing to make a decision? My question is, are you living on the path that Jesus has laid out for us? Don't look back and celebrate a previous decision you made. Rather, look ahead and get on the roadway that Christ has laid before us. 2,000 years ago, a man got on a donkey and guess what? That donkey didn't buck him off. We don't have time to get into that today, but just think about that for just a second. What usually happens when you get an animal in a crowd? Especially a you-know-what. He rides the donkey. Why? Because this king is king over everything. King over nature and king over you. This king who rode a donkey, chose to take a road that was not popular. This king chose to take a road that is actually foolish in the eyes of the world. This king chose to take a road that would be extremely difficult and ultimately lead to suffering. But this king chose a road that would lead to glory. Now you and I have the opportunity to experience glory because of this king and live on that exact same road. Let's take a road trip. But let's not travel in your Escalade. Let's travel in your 1979 Pinto. <laughs> let's take a road trip together. Not a road trip of fun and excitement, but a road trip that's foolish in the eyes of the world and extremely difficult. Let's take a road trip that doesn't lead to destruction, but leads to glory. Let's take a road trip, the same road trip that Jesus took.
Let us pray. Almighty God, we come before You this morning acknowledging that many times we have chosen our own path over Your path. We acknowledge that many times, O Lord, we have run from difficulty rather than embraced it and gone through it. Lord, this morning, we ask that by the power of Your Holy Spirit, You would enable us and empower us to walk on this same path that You walked on our behalf. God, I pray for anyone this morning that's journeying far from You. God, this morning, I pray for those who are on a different road completely. God, I ask that You would do a miracle this morning and give the gift of faith. And God, this morning, I pray that You do a miracle in all of our lives and put us on Your road. God, thank You for Your kindness. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for traveling with us. In Jesus' name, amen.